I think, frankly, T.Y. Hilton might just can hate his grandma because you don't you don't get a call from your grandmother saying you need to step up your game and then show up with a nice three catches for 52 yards and, and let Philip Rivers spread the ball out to 10 different receivers on 25 attempts. I mean, you just don't let that happen. You go up to Philip, 1L Philip in the locker room and you say I need the ball, I need to make my nana proud, and he just didn't do that. It's just straight <laughs> disrespectful. It's neglect for family. It's disrespecting your elders. I just I don't know what that is. You know something's wrong when your grandma's calling you out. That that's the first problem, right? Mm-hmm. Then the second problem is you go on the field up against an XFL team in the <laughs> New York Jets and you put up three catches for fifty yards, eight points. Come on, man. Like you just gotta do better. And now his grandma is probably sitting here, you know, ten forty seven at night, thinking like, Why is my g- grandson so trash? And that's just a terrible thought to have, so Condolences to uh, T.Y. Hilton's grandma. I mean, to me, it just it's basically the equivalent of like, you know, you take your grandma out to eat and you get to one of the spots where, where like they have the ramp, you know, to help her get her walker up the stairs. And he just walks up the stairs and leaves her down there without helping her <laughs> up. That's I think that's the kind of relationship that T.Y. Hilton has with his grandma. That's what I got from the day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 92 of the DFS Dose Podcast, your fix of daily fantasy sports information, strategy, and analysis. I'm your host, Ben Hover, joined as I always am by Joey Carrion. And today we are here to recap the week three action from a DFS perspective. We're going to talk about some of these slate decision points, our cash game results, whether or not we can take anything from some of the more interesting stats going forward. But before we do that, Joey, can you tell the people how they can support the podcast? As always, you can support the podcast by subscribing or following us on every single podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you listen to your podcast. We are there, so go ahead and subscribe or follow on those platforms. And then as always, you can follow us on Twitter at the DFS Dose to keep up to date with the latest uh, news or articles or videos from us. And then the DFS Dose on YouTube. Go ahead over there, subscribe. My new video will be out on Wednesday. And then Ben's cash game video will be out on Friday. So go ahead and subscribe on YouTube. And those are the best ways to support the DFS Dose. Yes, let's get right into what we saw in week three, starting off with some of the high-owned players on the week, and we'll transition directly into our cash game results as they go hand-in-hand. So the high-owned plays from a cash game perspective and the ownerships come from the $25 single-entry double-up, so we're looking at these from a cash game perspective. And the guys that people gravitated towards this week were, no surprise, Miles Sanders, 79.6%, basically 80% owned. I think that is the highest owned I've seen a player be in cash games this year. Jonathan Taylor, 48.3%. Kenyon Drake, 38.7%. Devin Singletary got popular late in the week when Zach Moss was ruled out at 32.2%, sort of absorbed the ownership that we were projecting for Mike Davis throughout the week. Kyler Murray, again, 
massive ownership, just like he had last week, 60.3%, accompanied by DeAndre Hopkins at 47.3%. Tight end, not too much uh, major chalk outside of Logan Thomas, our boy, who was 44.4%, another disappointing week there. And then at the receiver position, Deontay Johnson, 40.3%, CeeDee Lamb, 30 Lockett, 28.9%, and DK Metcalf, 22.3%. So let's get into our cash lineup, Joey, because we played a lot of these guys, and we ended up on the same team. That right that right away should have just told us that one of us needed to switch, because this happens maybe you know two or three times a year. We'll come up with the same cash lineup. You know, It's not like we're sharing the lineup. We just have a similar process, and we ended in the same spot. I would say that every time that's happened over the past few years, that lineup, we both feel super good about it. It just absolutely burns, complete crash, and that was uh, exactly what happened this week. Yeah, every time we land on the same lineup, it's an automatic L. So that was a tough pill to swallow going into the one o'clock games. But I think the lineup that we played was, you know, very good from a process standpoint. We jammed in the three running backs, you know, Sanders, Taylor and Drake were projected at least to get 20 plus touches. Uh, Didn't really happen like that. Played the wide receivers in the uh, popular games. Uh, went Kyler Murray at quarterback. Eagles defense, which was the best defense, in my opinion, under 3K. Uh, so I felt like the lineup basically made itself this week, and I was feeling very confident, but got burned again for the second week in a row. Personally, I won 20% of my head-to-heads and lost about 200 and fifty dollars on the slate total. I won some early only and some afternoon only slates, uh, but not enough to recoup the main slate for me. But you know, just terrible, terrible week. Yeah, I also uh, profited on both early only and afternoon only. That made it a little bit better. You know, after completely bottoming out on the main slate. So this lineup that we both ran finished with a hundred twelve point one points. The cash line was about one thirty six point three. So that's a pretty low cash line in general. But uh, it turns out that our lineup was just so bad that even a low cash line was about 20 points out of reach, 24 (laughs) points out of reach. Yeah, and I mean, it hurts to get hit with the injuries for the second week in a row for me um, in my cash lineup with Deontay Johnson going out of the game with a concussion. So that obviously hurt, and he only ended up scoring 0.9 points. So that is a terrible day right there. And then Kenyon Drake. In hindsight, I don't think we should have played him with Murray. I think a lot of Kenyon Drake's production will come when Kyler Murray isn't snapping. And Kyler Murray also takes a lot of the red zone rushing attempts away from Kenyon Drake. So in hindsight, probably not the best play from a process standpoint, but I still felt comfortable playing him with Kyler. But all around, like I said, bad week and, you know, just just L's on L's on L's. So. so there were two major decision points, I think, with this cash lineup and with cash games in general, and that was which of the two main builds to go with. The first build was the one that we went with, which included Taylor, Sanders, and Drake. And, you know, to spend up for those three 6K plus running backs, you were basically fading Hopkins as, you know, everybody was paying up for a quarterback. And, you know, we wanted exposure to some of the Dallas and Seattle receivers. So we faded Hopkins. 
but a lot of people played Hopkins. Obviously, almost 50% of the field went there, and, and those people you know, faded one or two of those running backs to get down to Singletary, Davis, or McKinnon. And it turns out that really any of those three would have worked for you. Singletary was the most popular. I think he was the best play, especially just considering his receiving work. I mean, he had four for 50 on five targets, put up 16.1 points. So he was the best point per dollar uh, guy, you know, out of, you know, him, Taylor, Sanders, Drake. How do you feel about that, you know, process, from you know looking back at it because I think that it was right in in general playing both Kyler and Drake gave us a lot of the exposure to the Cardinals so even though you know Hopkins wasn't in the lineup we were basically safe unless he went for a massive you know Tyler Lockett-esque game putting up 40 points and and he didn't do that I mean he had a good game 26 points but he only 3.37 x his salary so the Hopkins fade was good from a you know pre-lock process standpoint, I think. So I definitely agree from a process standpoint that fading DeAndre Hopkins was correct. Like you mentioned, he only ended up scoring, what, 25, 26 points, 3.37x does. So he didn't kill you if you didn't play him, but it definitely hurts if, you know, the wide receivers that you played, such as CeeDee Lamb and Deontay Johnson, and then, you know, one of Cooper, Metcalf or Lockett, it definitely came down to that. So, so that hurts, uh, especially when Deontay Johnson, like I mentioned, got hurt and CD Lamb was getting taken off the field for Cedric Wilson. I didn't see that coming. Uh, he, who ended up scoring two touchdowns. So from a pre-lock standpoint, I think fading D hop was the right play. Uh, but ultimately I don't think it worked out especially if you went the CD Lamb and Deontay Johnson route like we did at first it felt like a small blessing because you know I lost Paris Campbell last week and you know Deontay Johnson at least outscored him got that nice point nine opposed to the point seven that Campbell got so like small blessings but it, you know it just wasn't enough that point two wasn't going to do it and we're about 24 off the cash line <laughs> yeah needed to make up those points somewhere else and nobody wanted to do anything so definitely a tough scene yeah i mean i thought we were golden when i saw dk metcalf sprinting mm. down the field with a free release you know that looked like uh, a really good play you want to talk about that play where dk metcalf uh really just crushed all of our hopes of you know bouncing back in the second slate of games yeah man so i'm just sitting on the couch (laughs) watching watching tv watching the seahawks cowboys game and i see this grown-ass man just running down the sideline wide open not a player within five yards of him russell wilson throws a beautiful deep ball he catches it this man slows up for whatever reason Maybe because he thought he burned Diggs so bad that, you know, he was like 15 yards out of the play. Well, turns out Diggs was five yards behind him and just came and swatted the ball, which is an eight-point swing because the ball went out of the back of the end zone, which for some reason in 2020 is a touchback and it goes to the other team. Like, what's the difference of fumbling the ball out of bounds on the sideline and fumbling it out of the end zone? Doesn't make any sense to me, but that just, you know, when I saw that happen, I just put my head in my hands and I'm like, yeah, it's not meant to be today. So DK Metcalf, I have no words for you. Man thought he was as in the clear as Juju was on his walk-in touchdown. Yeah. Not quite, buddy. No, my guy. He was literally five yards behind you. Sprinting full speed at you. (laughs) (laughs) Sprinting full speed. And DK Metcalf's like, nah, I'm good. (laughs) Easy touchdown. Oh, psych. 
And then, so that's an eight-point swing right there. That touchdown probably takes a touchdown away from Tyler Lockett, who ended up scoring 40 points and was 28% owned more owned than DK Metcalf in uh, cash games this week. So in the grand scheme of things, it's more like a 15 to 20 point swing right there. And that's just variance at its finest, you know? What are you going to do? You're saying that you didn't project Tyler Lockett for two one-yard touchdowns at the goal line? No. (laughs) Got to adjust the projections next week. (laughs) Yep. Chris Carson not getting one attempt from the one-yard line, but got to scheme up the plays to have Tyler Lockett cross the end zone wide open, and and Russell Wilson has to throw a minimum of five touchdowns in every game. So we have to keep that in our minds moving forward, uh, especially for next week, because he's throwing for a minimum of seven touchdowns against the Dolphins. Yeah, I don't think that stack is going to be too uh, sneaky against Miami next (laughs) week, but I guess we'll talk about that on the Thursday show. So we made the wrong choice going Metcalf over Lockett. You know, ultimately, I thought it was pretty much a toss up with the target distribution between the two of them, which ended up not being the case at all. Maybe it was a matchup thing. Maybe it was how injured the, you know, the corners, the slot corners were for Dallas that just, you know, forced them to give Lockett 13 targets and Metcalf only four. But the other guy in that price range that I think was squarely in consideration, and he had some cash ownership too. He was about like 17% in the double ups. And that was Amari Cooper, who, you know, again, had 12 targets in this spot. But, you know, Joey and I both sort of landed on this same position where we wanted exposure to both sides of the ball here. And we figured that we could get it by playing CD Lamb for cheap and then playing one of the Seahawks receivers up at that range where Cooper was. You know, I thought that that was right, honestly, even though Amari Cooper was the best play of the group, in my opinion, from like a target perspective, even though Tyler Lockett ended up getting more targets. Um, you know, usually I think he's going to be in that eight to nine range, not 10 plus, whereas Cooper now is averaging 12 targets per game. So I get, I don't know how I feel about that in retrospect. I mean, you know, I did say that Cooper was the best play of the group and then I didn't play him in favor of Lamb. So that might've been one of, one of the mistakes on the week, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I wanted to play Cooper, you know, so bad as well. But like you mentioned, we wanted exposure to both sides of the ball. And the build just fit with playing Lamb at 5.4 and Deontay at 5.4. And then, you know, you had your choice out of Cooper, Metcalf, and Lockett. I think playing two Cowboys wide receivers was wrong from a process standpoint. So that's, you know, where we basically ended up with a Lockett versus Metcalf pick em. And then we landed on Metcalf due to his upside and his higher ceiling than Lockett because even in cash games you want to you want to target those guys with good ceilings and and good floors which I think DK Metcalf has I was fine with with fading Cooper although he was my favorite play Cooper is gonna be a target monster this year I think yeah and let's transition into the stats portion of the show because I've got something on Amari Cooper right up top and that's noticing that he did again have 12 targets he's averaging 12 targets per game but he's the only Dallas wide receiver right now to not have 20 points through three weeks Gallup did it today Lamb did it last week I mean hell even Cedric Wilson did it today got his first NFL catch today and and he put up 20 so Amari Cooper do we have to look at him as somebody who has a high floor but maybe a lower ceiling than these other guys he's not getting the deep touchdowns he's not getting targeted in the red zone or is it, or, you know, is his time going to come? Because he does have the most dominant target share. I mean, 
12 targets per game in this Dallas offense is hard to look away from, but it's just it just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I mean, he's had pretty good games, you know, in, in his first three weeks, and 12 targets a game is encouraging. Obviously, you want that kind of opportunity with the players that you roster in DFS and fantasy. So I think that his time will come. Um, he's the best wide receiver on the team, and Dak obviously treats him as the number one. And the Cowboys touchdowns have been very unpredictable to start the season because he is like the only Dallas pass catcher that doesn't have a touchdown yet. So that obviously hurts because they have so many weapons who will steal touchdowns. And that's the only bad part about being in the most talented offense in the NFL is that those, you know, ancillary guys like Cedric Wilson and Dalton Schultz might vulture a touchdown here or there and it'll skew Amari Cooper's fantasy performance. But I think that you trust his 12 targets a game in the best offense in the NFL, in my opinion, and you keep on playing Amari Cooper as long as, you know, his price doesn't get too outrageous. And, and Amari Cooper in the past has been a more of a boomer bust guy, and now it seems like he is a guy with a high floor, and I still tend to agree that the boom exists. So maybe he has, you know, just become a better fantasy asset, you know, from a, a, a more macro perspective where the floor is higher and the, and the ceiling weeks will still come as they always have throughout his career. So I think we just have to be patient with him and you know, keep plugging and playing them in good spots. Getting 18 and 17 points isn't a bad day by any means. So the the good days are here and the great days will come. He'll put up a 37 or a 45 point uh, game in, in the following weeks for sure. Yeah, especially if this Dallas offense keeps the way that it's going. Speaking of, you know, a Dallas skill player who had 12 targets, let's talk about Zeke Elliott, who disappointing day overall, but he did see... 12 targets, only turned it into six for 24 receiving, but Dallas's offense looks great and their defense looks terrible. And I think that it's really encouraging that they were willing to give Elliott as many looks in the passing game as they did in a negative game script. And, and to me, that just solidifies Elliott as the top fantasy asset right now. Uh, you know, with McCaffrey out, with Barkley out, I think that until his price starts reaching that you know 8.59 10k range like he's only 7.8k on DraftKings next week looking ahead a little bit early I mean he's going to be one of the best pure values uh on on the slate I think yeah and I definitely agree with you I mean I have in my notes that he's the best running back to own in fantasy football period right now just due to the opportunity that he's receiving in this Dallas offense I mean they are feeding this man with most of the running back attempts and then he's getting seven to 10 targets a game, you know, 10 plus targets in this matchup. So it's obvious that they want him to be involved in the passing game just as much as he's involved in the running game. And he's going to be a great play in DFS every single week of the year, especially if he stays under like 8,500. It's going to be hard to not play Zeke uh, in this offense. Yeah, definitely game flow independent with this, you know, insane market share of targets that he's been getting recently. Speaking of a running back with a crazy market share of targets, Austin Eckler back in business as a receiver had 12 carries for 59 and one on the ground and then topped it off with 11 receptions for 80 yards. My takeaway here is that Herbert is good for Eckler. He's much better than Taylor would be for Eckler. 
And I think that we overreacted as a fantasy community in general to, you know, Eckler's slow start as a receiver to start the year. I mean, he's still got it. For sure. Um, Eckler was a smash play today. And I mean, we were all over it. I tweeted about it too. Like it was stealing money, Eckler at his current price tag. And I think the key thing with Eckler is what you mentioned is that Justin Herbert is way more beneficial to Eckler than Tyrod Taylor. Uh, but the question that I have for you is how long do we project Herbert to be the starter when the coach is adamant on Tyrod being the starter when he's healthy? I mean, Anthony Lynn paid the team doctor to puncture Tyrod's lung <laughs> so that he could get the rookie in sooner. I don't think... Th- <laughs> Yo, that's no. crazy. No, I don't know. I mean, that is crazy. I actually feel really bad for Taylor because he seems like a, you know, a pretty cool dude and whatever. But yeah, I mean... Herbert looks pretty bad in my opinion. He looked terrible today and I don't know. I, I don't know if they're going to go back to Taylor. They probably will at some point. Yeah, I guess I guess I just don't know. The longer Herbert's in though, the better for Eckler, especially if he continues turning the ball over and putting the Chargers in negative game scripts where they have to be in comeback mode and rely on Eckler for dump offs. I mean, as long as Herbert's in there, I'm all aboard the Eckler train. So let, let's keep him in there for a while. I think they already announced that he'll be in at least for week four. Yeah. And I think Eckler's value definitely correlates with Herbert being the starter as I think the Chargers offense has a lower floor with Herbert, you know, due to him being a rookie and, you know, he's not that good of a quarterback right now in his career. But I think their ceiling is higher because he is willing to push the ball down the field and does provide some dynamic to this Chargers offense that Tyrod Taylor lacks. Uh, so if Taylor takes over as a starter in, you know, say, let's say two or three weeks, I think that hurts Eckler's value a lot. But as long as Herbert is the starter, Eckler will be a great uh, fantasy play moving forward. You know, I'm not the biggest film guy. You could tell me what you think about this take, but Herbert is giving me major Mitchell Trubisky vibes. How do you feel about that? Like he's he's athletic. He makes some plays with his legs and he pushes the ball downfield. He'll have an impressive play here and there, but like, I don't know, man. Some of the decisions are just not not logical. I don't know what's going on through his head. We've talked about it on this podcast before, you know, just when we were talking about the rookies way back when. And I am not a Justin Herbert fan. He was very inaccurate in college. Like his team didn't even trust him to throw the ball in their conference championship game, I believe it was. Uh, could be wrong on that, but I know it was an important game and they literally did not want this man to throw the ball. That's how bad he was. And we're seeing those traits uh, translate into these first few games. I mean, he wasn't expected to be the starter, so I guess we can cut him some slack there and he got thrust into the role unexpectedly. But I believe that he is not a good quarterback and I will stick to that until he proves it. And, and you know, who knows how long until we see that but him and Trubisky do have a lot of comparable traits I will say and Trubisky is god awful and thank god he got benched because that gives Allen Robinson a huge boost moving forward uh for me yeah also gives my best ball rosters a huge boost because I was drafting fulls quite a bit in the, in the early early best ball league so shout out to big dick Nick that's uh that's <laughs> a good switch glad that finally happened let's Talk about something that, you know, it's it's hard for me because this is one of my one of my favorite players in recent years, but I think it's time to adjust our opinion on him, and that's Juju Smith Schuster. In a game where Deontay Johnson 
you know, who has basically become the focal point of the Steelers offense, goes out with a concussion early in the game. Juju Smith-Schuster still cannot lead the Steelers in targets. He got out-targeted by both James Washington and Eric Ebron. What's your take on Juju, I guess is what I want to know, because to me it seems like there is just a major disconnect. I was expecting Big Ben coming in on a shortened offseason to rely on the guys that he had an established rapport with. That was Juju. And it's just not happening. Okay, so so hear me out, all right? I have a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. All right, just let me explain this. So I, I, I don't know what's going on with Juju, but this is the theory. I believe that the Steelers know what they have in Juju, right? They know that they have a capable wide receiver one that will get the job done mm-hmm. when necessary. He's going to be there on a weekly basis. You know he's not going to, you know, make any mental errors. He's not going to, you know, drop the ball and whatnot. Like, he's always going to be there. He's going to be the rock of their skill position players. And I believe that they want to give these ancillary guys like Ebron, James Washington, Claypool, Deontay Johnson... I think they want to give them more opportunities to build their confidence throughout the season... But that comes at Juju's expense. Mm. So so this is like galaxy brain type stuff. So Mike Tomlin wants to build, you know, this team chemistry, this great team chemistry. And he knows that Big Ben and Juju have great chemistry already. So he wants to force the chemistry between Big Ben and Deontay, Big Ben and Ebron, Big Ben and James Washington and Claypool, et cetera, et cetera. Because those are talented players, and if they get going, the Steelers' offense could be unstoppable. So that's my conspiracy theory on the thing. Obviously, it hurts Juju's fantasy stock, but I think they're doing it as like a team morale builder type of joint. So I don't know how you feel about that. That's given me a lot to think about, and it makes more sense to me, honestly, than like Juju is not the player that we saw him be. I mean, he was like 22 years old, putting up like 1,400 yards in the NFL. So I think Juju's a great player. He hasn't looked bad. That's the thing. No, he hasn't. He's getting open. You know, he scored a touchdown against the Texans, uh, scored two touchdowns week one. So he's playing really well. He's also a chill dude. He's like a young, chill guy. He's not like Antonio Brown. He's not going to be throwing a fit because he's not getting his targets. He's like, he, he could be on board with that, you know? Could be like something him and Tomlin talked about where he's like, yeah, you know, establish it for the young guys. And then when it's time... You know, exactly. I know I'll get mine. That makes mad sense, right? Like, I'm not bugging. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think that I'm on board with that now. Every team should do it, especially if you have those superstars, because it's important to build your depth guy's confidence. Because when those guys are confident, the whole offense will just, you know, chug along without any problems. Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a nice train on the tracks. Just keep it moving. Keep it pushing. And Mike Tomlin is a smart guy, I want to think. So I think that's what he's doing. He just wants to build the ultimate team chemistry. So that means Deontay Johnson, Eric Ebron, and all those guys are, you know, they're they're going to get targets and, you know, it comes at Juju's expense, unfortunately. I love the theory. Uh, let's transition here to a wide receiver who is getting his right off the bat, fresh off the return. Kenny Galladay, my boy, comes back. Has only seven targets, but that was a 22.5% market share of the Lions targets, and he only played 73% of snaps. He told the media on Friday that he was not 100% yet, so I think that we could see those snaps, you know, continually increase. Probably two weeks from now, he'll be back, 
you know, to 90 plus where he always is. And it was encouraging. I mean, he looked good out there. You couldn't tell that he wasn't a hundred percent made a really impressive catch for, uh, I think a 15 yard touchdown it was. So I think that Kenny Galladay slots right back in where he left off and it won't be too long before he's putting up legit wide receiver one numbers again. Yeah, I definitely think he is a wide receiver one moving forward as long as he's healthy. I mean, Stafford plays better and the Lions offense in general plays better when he's on the field. And if his price stays in the mid six K's on DraftKings, like smash just auto lock Kenny Galladay uh, especially with the Lions defense and and, you know they're going to be losing in a lot of these games so positive game scripts for Kenny Galladay are inbound and the Lions have a cupcake schedule coming up so I would buy into these lines the only uh thing with them is they're persistent on giving Adrian Peterson 25 touches in 2020 so yeah he's the centerpiece of their offense (laughs) it's absolutely Uh, disgraceful that adrian peterson is getting 20 touches and deandre swift had zero carries and like two targets (laughs) that's fine though matt patricia's not long for detroit so it's okay we can we can get over it it'll be you know what like 14 short weeks before we can be on to the next oh it must be tough to be a lions fan I could never imagine. Yeah, it's it's tough. But while we're in this wide receiver one conversation, how about Calvin Ridley? You know, I was worried that he might actually suffer without Julio Jones there. You know, he had some quotes in the past about how he like hated being double covered. And, you know, Julio's always been there to sort of take the number one corner treatment. And, you know, Julio misses the game. Calvin Ridley wasn't very efficient, only had five catches, but still third straight 100 yard game to open the season. Calvin Ridley is... I mean, he's a bona fide wide receiver one this season. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Calvin Ridley is a baller straight up. Also had 13 targets. Yeah. But with no Julio, that was to be expected in a tough matchup against the Bears secondary. And, you know, I don't want to say it, but he might be the Falcons wide receiver one. Mm. No cap. Mm. Run the tape. I said it last week, and I'm going to say it from here on out. He, There's no might be about it. He is. <laughs> the Falcons wide receiver one, Calvin Ridley. Yeah, that boy Julio was on the sideline looking mad depressed. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that or not, but they no. they had like a they had like a little sideline shot of Julio just sitting on the bench with his mask on his chin. Or I, wait, I don't even think he was wearing a mask. Like, come on, bro. And then probably he just so depressed like, he wants the COVID. Yeah, <laughs> he just looked like he's like, damn, I lost my spot. That's what he was thinking. That's probably what A.J. Green was feeling when T. Higgins caught his second touchdown. Yeah, and we didn't even touch on all the troll touchdowns in this week. Yeah, that was terrible. I, I mean, it was like an all-time high of guys that just had no business catching touchdowns. I mean, if you want to touch on it real quick, I know you were pretty tilted about this. The uh, the Millie-making lineup had a couple of trolls in there. <laughs> I mean, you know how big your dick has to be to play Rex Burkhead and Jeff Wilson? <laughs> And win a million dollars, like straight up. I mean, like that's like, like Nick that, Foles shit right there. That swear to God, oh my God, I don't even have any words. <laughs> Rex Burkhead and Jeff Wilson Jr., two stone minimum running backs on DraftKings, combined for fifty-five, fifty-four points. Um, and then he hits the nuts with the Seahawks stack and the Gallup bringback. Gotta love it for uh, a million. <laughs> dollars it's what it takes to become a millionaire in dfs i guess 
Yeah. Oh, oh man. All right. Got a few more here and we can get out of here and, and just go slump into our post-loss depression here from, from a, a hard day of DFS. Uh, Slot-wide receivers against the Bills. I, I think it's definitely a thing. I was texting you about this this morning. I, I got on this wave late in the week looking at some of the numbers. I mean, Crowder torched the Bills for over 100 yards in week one. Isaiah Ford, who's you know not really a great player, managed seven for 76 against the Bills. And then Cooper Cup comes in nine for 107 and one. I mean, you could make the argument that it was partially due to game script as, you know, the Rams were down early in this game. But still, I think that it makes a lot of sense with Tredavious White, you know, usually getting the shadow coverage of the number one guy and leaving the slot open. I think this is one of the matchups that we're going to look to target when there is a, you know, strong slot receiver going against the Bills this year. Definitely a factor is that the Bills have been leading in all three of these games so far. So the opposing offenses have had to throw at higher rates, which obviously provides more targets for guys like Cup Crowder. And I would mention Mike Gesicki instead of Isaiah Ford, who mainly plays in the slot. That's fair. Uh, so Mike Gesicki also snapped against the Bills. What do you go for, like 28 uh, points on DK in he week went two? For like 130 yards. Yeah. And I and I think that's definitely a factor is that the Bills have, you know, been one of the best offenses in the NFL to start the season. Josh Allen is balling out. So these teams are going to have to throw the ball more when they're playing against the Bills. Um, and like you mentioned with Trey White on the outside, all of the targets are going to get funneled towards the middle of the field, uh, making the slot receivers against Buffalo very valuable. And that's definitely a spot to target uh, moving forward in DraftKings. Hunter Renfro, 4,600 next week against okay. Buffalo. I don't, I don't, no, I don't know. No shot. It's just, no uh, shot. Just skip it next week. Something to put out there into the into the world. I don't know. Um <laughs> Let's talk about a rookie wide receiver who made his emergence into the spotlight this week. Justin Jefferson, seven for 175 and one for a team leading nine targets for Minnesota. Give me your thoughts on Jefferson. Yeah, so I believe that Justin Jefferson will be a good like wide receiver in the NFL. But Adam Thielen is still the guy there, still the Vikings wide receiver one. They still have Delvin Cook. I think we were wrong about the Vikings and Titans game. I know you said to bet the under, which lost and and you know, we had a we had a rough day in the bet department, I believe. Uh yeah, I mean Justin Jefferson, I, I think he'll be a solid fantasy contributor. But he's not going to be a guy that is going to lead the Vikings in targets on a weekly basis. I could see his target share settle around like 15 to 18 percent, averaging like six to eight targets a week, uh, maybe even less. So, you know, I don't I don't mind Jefferson, uh, but he's definitely an intriguing prospect, especially if you play Dynasty. Yeah, I mean, he he was a rock solid like NFL prospect from just the perspective of what he does on the field. And I think that it's encouraging to see him producing early. And I think that it's encouraging to imagine a scenario where uh, the quarterback situation improves in the future as he continues to develop and Adam Thielen will be in his 30s next year. I think that, you know, for a dynasty perspective, Justin Jefferson would be a huge buy right now if you could get him. Yeah, I mean, when the Vikings get Trevor Lawrence in the 2021 NFL draft, uh, Thielen and, and Jefferson are going to be lit, like dumb lit. Because, I mean, Kirk Cousins is like a bottom five quarterback right now. He is absolutely garbage. 
<laughs> yeah, he's terrible. Absolutely terrible. Kirk Cousins. Did you see that last drive of the Vikings game? Mm-hmm. It was absolutely terrible. Like, you know, they should have released Kirk Cousins after <laughs> that game. You like that? No, nobody does. <laughs> um, and then I think we have to close out the show, Joey, with a humble apology to our <laughs> listeners because... You know, I, I logged on to the DFS Dose Twitter this morning and I sent a little tweet out there and I, I told the people that step one to winning this week was to play Darius Slayton, a.k.a. Godia. Step two was to play Logan Thomas. And I'm just sorry. I'm frankly sorry for A, you know, the bad advice and for B, you know, like these guys, clearly they're just going through something right now because, you know, I don't know Darius personally, but I feel like I do because I've tweeted his name like a thousand times and I just feel like you know, this isn't the type of player he is. Slayton and Thomas both have exactly 23% uh, target shares in their respective offenses. You know, these guys want to be producing more than they are. Thomas, I mean, his targets, I think we have to start accounting for the quality of them. Dwayne Haskin targets have to be worth like half of what a regular target is. And with Slayton, it's just, <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on, but I know that he's a champion, you know, from a human perspective. And I think that he will rebound. It won't be long before Slayton gets gets things going. Uh, I just want to apologize to the listeners for leading them astray with our boys this week. Yeah, uh, tough, tough, tough week for Darius and Logan. Uh, I mean, come on, Logan. Like, this man has seen no less than seven targets in each game throughout the first three weeks and has only scored over 10 points once. Absolutely terrible. But I mean, the Washington football team's offense is god-awful. Um, I couldn't imagine playing any player from that team in fantasy moving forward. Um, And Darius, like, I'm disappointed. And Darius Slayton, uh, my boy since day one. Mm. Been on him since the jump, since the rookie draft mm. of 2019 when I was getting roasted by my two best friends in the group chat saying how I'm such a donkey for for uh, hyping this man up. And, and he lets me down like this. Um, played him everywhere in tournaments. Got burned by him. Daniel Jones is very suspect right now. Uh, can't seem to do anything on offense. Jason Garrett is an absolute scrub of an offensive coordinator, which hurts their stock. The Giants have no offensive line. I, I can think of a hundred other problems that I won't say, but yeah, tough, tough, tough scene with those two guys and you know, we're sorry. We'll be better. And so will Slate. And I know he will. I can feel the frustration from him and he will, he will re- uh, rebound before long. But um, I think that's going to be it for us on this week three recap. I hope you guys, uh, you know, enjoyed listening to our pain after catching a fat L this week, just, a, just a, just heavy L right on our heads. Uh, you know, it couldn't go on forever. I was smashing the first two weeks, posting like 90% win rates in cash, dropped a nice 17% or on the week this week. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you need these before, you know, you get too big of a head, think you're a DFS god and all that. Like, it's good to come back to earth and it just makes me hungry to get back into next week and probably end up playing Logan Thomas in cash again. So, uh, <laughs> but hopefully not. Hopefully Joey will talk me off of that on our Thursday show. And yes, we will be back on Thursday to preview all of week four. 
Uh, like Joey said at the top of the show, you can support us by following us on any major podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as Twitter, at the DFS Dose, and finally, our personal Twitters. I'm at Ben Hover, B-E-N-H-A-U-V-E-R. Joey, tell them where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at Joey Carrion DFS. All right, guys, thank you for listening, and we will be back on Thursday. Pain.